how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Valerie Armstrong always wanted to be a writer, but quickly discovered there was no clear path to becoming a professional screenwriter. That said, she knew she had to give it a shot, and she eventually landed a job as a writer's assistant on the series Masters of Sex. These days, she's known for writing Seal Team, Lodge 49, and Kevin Can F Himself, where she's also the creator of this AMC series. The plot is about the secret life of a sitcom wife, but the real pitch of the show is within the manipulation of genre. In this interview, Valerie talks about advice from Michelle Ashford, why females in the industry need to bring others up with them, the truth about story math, writing with a singular voice in mind, and the necessity of discussing moments in the writer's room. I didn't realize that one could have a career in, in film and television until I watched uh, Dawson's Creek at the age of 13 and Dawson wants so bad to be a director. I don't think I even knew what that was until then. And it was from then on that I, I mean, I had always loved movies and, and television. My mom used to say that I could tell what time it was based on what rerun was on. Um, but I, from then on knew that that's what I wanted to work in. And I thought, I'm a very practical person. Uh, so I thought, oh, I'll just be an accountant. They must need accountants or, you know, but at least I'll get to work in, in movies. And then I took enough film classes. I took a screenwriting class. And it was like slowly coming to terms with the fact that I wanted to write because I knew it, it's so hard and it, there is no track. You know, it's not like law where it's like, well, you go and you're an associate and then you're, you know, there's just no easy way through and I know no knew no one. Um, certainly, I did not grow up in LA or anywhere near it. When I told people that's what I wanted to do, it felt like saying I plan on living on the moon because it's just nonsense from where I'm from. Um, but I, it just 
it wouldn't leave. It wouldn't leave. And I would write scenes in my head for shows that I liked. Uh, and, and I still write scenes in my head for people in my life, just planning out arguments and things like that. Um, and it's just, I knew that if I didn't try it, then I would live my entire life with this horrible feeling in my gut. Like I missed it. And so I worked it up for 10 years and finally, finally, here we are. What were some of those early inspirations? Cause uh, you mentioned Dawson's, I think Dawson was obsessed with Steven Spielberg. Uh, I went to, he was. I went to Wilmington. So I was like where they filmed that and stuff like that at. So what were some of your early uh, mentorships, right? Or people you looked up to, who did you look to, especially, and then especially towards women and those things as well. I in high school was very, very obsessed with Gilmore Girls. It takes place in Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut. It felt like the only show that touched. I mean, it shot in Burbank. It did not shoot anywhere near me, but it still felt like accessible for some reason. And it was run by a woman who was so strong and knew what she wanted. And um, I, I mean, I would listen to any director's commentary on any TV show I liked that that show included. And it's not, you know, I'm not super it's not the most highbrow influence, I'll say that, but I'm not a cool person. So there won't be many cool answers in this. Um, I mean, I loved Sorkin. I I loved The Office in high school. Um, but I, I guess the biggest possible influences on me were bosses of mine. Um, I feel like I did everything in this business uh, possible. I got coffee for everybody. And uh, I... I was lucky enough to get coffee for really, really amazing women. My first job in television was um, on Masters of Sex. I was a writer's PA and I got lunch. I was finally around writers and I got lunch for them every day and did whatever they asked me to do. And that show was run by Michelle Ashford, who was incredible and a very, very strong female boss. Amy Lipman was an EP on that, who was like my LA mother and Sarah Timberman was an EP. And they were just these three amazing women who were doing this job without pretending that they were a guy, which you find a lot. Women who've gotten up to the top by sort of being one of the boys and getting along with all them in the room and not bringing anybody up behind them, mm. sort of sneaking their way in. And these women were not doing that. They brought me up behind them. They did this job as like, and saw themselves as like set mother, which I just loved. And I think it made for a really great environment. And it was a completely different way to do this job than I had thought of. And it just gave me all the confidence in the world that I could follow in their footsteps. I'm so grateful for them. Mm. Tell me about um, some of your work on Seal Team and Lodge 49. I think Seal Team's uh, kind of a standard show. You, you, people may know what to expect. Lodge 49, for me, was very out there. I was very impressed by it. It ended kind of abruptly. I think fans were a little upset that there's not a little more to it than there was. But tell me a little bit about that writer's room and writing something so unique and odd like that. Yeah, they were very different experiences. Uh I am so grateful to SEAL Team. I was their writer's assistant, and halfway through the season, they promoted me to my first staff writing gig. Um, and that's that show was all math. You know, it was story math. It was how do you get them out? How do they go? What what is the hitch? 
And there's something so comforting in that, but also very difficult. It's its own beast to try to figure out how to do the same sort of equation, but differently every week for 22 weeks. Um, and it was, it was just a fantastic lesson in, in story math. And then Lodge 49, it felt a lot more like Masters of Sex to me, which was a room that I got to spend a lot of time in. Um, and it was so character-based and moment-based and all about those little things and scenes that make them worth telling mm -hmm. as opposed to something blowing up which has its own place, you know, but Lodge was so, it had such a singular voice. I mean, that's what made it so brilliant uh, is Jim Gavin. That show is Jim Gavin. And I am so happy. I hope I helped him along in any way possible, but I, I think that show is a great lesson in um, rowing the boat as much as humanly possible on a show where you know that, you know, every script is him. I don't know how, I hope I was helpful in that way, but it's just, you you have to know someone else's sensibility and try to give them what they want, even though that might not be your sensibility. And I was, but I love that job too. I'm such a people pleaser that finding out what someone wants and giving it to them is, is a, a huge, um, I find such validation in it. So I loved that job in a totally different way than, than this job, than, you know, running my own show and being the person who, who wants people to help row the boat. It seems like that would be, or really all these shows, you mentioned kind of the, the, the formulate nature of SEAL team. It seemed like Lodge 49, you'd have to know where you're going with that show. It's so specific with the season to season. Um, what did you take from these two shows as a showrunner now? Like how important is outlining to you? What are some of the things that you all, like, where do you start with, with a new season of a show? I think, like you said, Lodge was very, um, uh, it, it had to know where it was going. You know, it's not kind of figure it out as you go. If you want to tell a story over a season, you can't just start in on 201 or 101 and and see what happens. You know, those first few weeks are always big arc discussions about the season. And so I definitely took that into, you know, into my own room. We talked a lot about in that room about like moments that we wanted to see. Uh, and I, I tried to do the same thing at, at Kevin. Um, and SEAL Team, there's story math and everything. You know, it, it's it's it really actually did help in its own way um, uh, on Kevin. But yeah, I think I'm never trying to, a lot of shows say like, we're really, our season is one long movie. That's not, that's never what I wanted to do because I think that that's uh, a very easy way to wave off sort of filler episodes or not filler, but ones that, you know, if you're in the middle of act two in a movie, that's not always the best part. And to, to sort of wave away episode six by being like, well, that's that part of the movie. That doesn't count to me. So I wanted to make sure that our episodes did tell a bigger story always, that it always serves the arc, but also that each one can sort of be identified the one with, 
mm-hmm. I think Glow season two did that perfectly. I can, I think maybe still recite all of those episodes because they, they each had their own identity, but also completely told a bigger story. So I, I hope that we achieve that in both seasons on, on Kevin. So what are, so for those that are not familiar, I'll do like kind of an opening and tell what the show's about, but how did you guys kind of start to break away the, the two, the, the big elements of the show, the different genres and do the showcasing and is it two different things you're putting together? Is one always the mirror of the other? What are some of the rules you guys created? Very early on, I, when it was just, you know, just me alone writing and nobody wanted to read it, <laughs> I decided, um, in, in the absence of an explanation for the format switch, because it goes back and forth between a typical sitcom and a single camera dark comedy, that I, I would never explain why that is. Um, I, it is never supposed to be in her head. We, we go to great pains to try to make that clear. It is not a show within a show. It is simply the way this world is presented. And in absence of an explanation, I think, like you said, you need you need rules. So uh, in the first two episodes, we really tried to teach people how the show works, which is if Kevin, Neil, or Pete are on screen, it is a sitcom. They get to live in that world. They're what I call multicam catalysts. And um, that means that we have to tell a sort of CBS sitcom story every every week within another show and we never just throw in multicam scenes to make our single cam work better they have to you have to be able to pull all of them out and have their own little story um we we also learned things going going forward which was like emotional significance any sort of single camera like beat that you're supposed to take out of a sitcom scene you almost never will you need either a header or a footer on that on that multicam scene in single cam to tell you what to take away from it if you're trying to to advance anything in the single camera um which i couldn't i couldn't have told you before we shot mm. i didn't know that um so those were things that we lived by and like also that is kevin's show you know that's the whole point is that he gets his own everything revolves around him. Um, and that means a lot of times that he gets the joke and we wanted to make sure we were never telling a single camera joke in the multicam. Uh, we wanted to always make sure that if that mythical studio audience was real, that they wouldn't ever be confused about what's going on. For instance, you know, you can't have Annie, uh, or Allison, um, try to kill him in multicam and fail and have the audience laugh because they'd be like, wait, what is she doing? Mm-hmm. So we always, we tried to make it all as sort of real as possible to the genre. And it was really hard. We made two shows. We keep saying next time, let's just make one. <laughs> Did that make you keep those sitcom characters more like surface level? And then also kind of like, how do you think about you know, I think the old adage is like, if the character grows, it's a comedy. If they don't grow, it's a tragedy. Did you think about these two elements while writing these two different worlds? I've never, I've never heard that before, but I really like that. Um, I did, I did think a lot about, you know, 
if these guys only exist in multicam, am I saying they don't have an inner life? And I think all I'm trying to communicate is that they don't have to deal with consequences in the same way. You know, they get to make jokes about burning down the neighbor's pergola, but they don't have to do anything. They get all these people laughing about it. But then those neighbors have to deal with the fact that they're they're long caught on fire. And you see that all the time with Allison and Patty. And we try to expand that sort of sphere of influence and what we see in our second season to say, like, these guys get to walk around as boys until they die. <laughs> and it's everyone else who has to clean up the mess. And and it's not just mess. Sometimes Kevin is, um, he has purpose. He is manipulative. He He's not just hapless in, in his destruction. They have, you know, he has targets and he always hits them. He always gets what he wants. And so also in our second season, we have a character who was, in multicam who is now in in single cam because he's sort of lost that benefit of the doubt that he used to have and we really wanted to explore what it's like to have to reckon with your behavior once you've kind of come to terms with uh what you've been doing your entire life i'm trying to i'm trying to explain without giving anything away but that's not to say he never had an inner life. It's just to say that he never did that deep thinking. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.